Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. I do have the text there printed for you in the outline in your bulletin. Hosea chapter 6. Our focus will be verses 4 through 10. Just a small section in a 14-chaptered book. You will recall the context of this book is the divided kingdom. You remember Solomon uh, ruled a united kingdom. But after Solomon's death, due to several complexities, the kingdom split between the north and the south. The north being called Ephraim for the biggest region or city area, uh, also known as Israel. Not to be confused with the south, which was the two tribes, Judah. And God's ongoing covenantal hand remained upon Judah, the tribe from which Messiah would come. And the northern kingdom was constantly being called back to repentance. Uh, but they consistently pushed off God's call of repentance. And God would raise up prophets from the south to preach to all those who were part of the region that was the promised land. Uh, but specifically, Hosea was from the north. And he was called to preach a message of repentance to the northern kingdom that they might come back to God. Unfortunately for Hosea, he had to endure one of the most difficult life situations of any prophet. All the prophets were depressed guys. I mean, it was a tough job being a prophet. Uh, but Hosea, he was called to marry someone who was adulterous before he married her. She proved to continue to be adulterous after he married her. And then in the end, he was called to redeem her from slavery that her adultery had led her to. The first three chapters, that's what it's about. And what we realize is this is an analogy of us and God. And we're not Hosea. We're the bad side of the analogy. We're the ones that are adulterous. We're the ones who uh, raise up other gods besides the true God who's redeemed us. And despite all of our sin, God still acts at great cost to redeem us. The blood of his own son. That's the picture of what's to come in the prophecy here today before us. The particular text that we have arrived at really paints the picture of what was most problematic in the lives of the northern kingdom. And this will directly impact our understanding of our own walk with God. J.I. Packer says in his great book called Knowing God, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. People have grown away from this, clouded with so many other things. But to know God, brothers and sisters, that is what it's about. When you know that is your striving, your effort, that's your life, everything else seems to fall into proper perspective. To know God. Hear God's word, Hosea 6, 4 through 10. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. 
Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this verse, especially verse 6, as it is, comes in the midst of a difficult message for Hosea to deliver to the people who were committing spiritual adultery. Lord, help us to harness what is meant here in verse 6, that we might see how it translates in our day, in our lives. And I pray this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Do you know anybody famous? Now, Nathan and I know someone who will be more famous than he is currently, so I want you all to remember it. We went to school with a guy named Mike Shope. Write that down. He is the biggest talk show star right now in the sports talk show uh, world in the western New York area. Small potatoes right now. But mark my words, he's, we graduated with him. We knew him very well. Uh, he will at some point be on ESPN. And I know him. And so when you see him, you can say, my pastor knows him. I know him. Now, I do think it's nice if you think I'm cool because I know him. However, there's something about knowing him from way back that gives me this kind of almost bothersome sense of worth. I know that guy. Now, I know it happens in all your lives. In every sphere that you are part of, there's what we call name dropping. Now, why is that done? Do you know so-and-so at the workplace or even in the subdivision? Do you know the person who lives down? It happens in every sphere. Kids do it all the time. Do you know so-and-so? How do you know? And it's always related to something about them that makes them stand out, this person they know. And if other people know they know them, uh, there will be some uh, higher outlook about their own self. But even beyond that, just personally, there's a sense in which it's neat that you know someone who is someone. I think we all know what this is like. It's tr- it just transcends every facet of our lives. Every person here knows a little bit of what I mean. You just want to know someone who means something. Brothers and sisters... I know God. I said, I know God. Do you know God? That's what was missing. That's what the people who once were redeemed by God had lost. They no longer knew God. They cared more about knowing the king of Assyria than the living God. How have I come to know God? How have you come to know God? Let's not miss this. I don't want to make it sound like it's something Tony did. Quite the contrary. I have come to know God because He has revealed Himself to me primarily through His Word and His Spirit's ministry with the Word. That's how I've come to know God. I haven't come to know Him by feeling or by sitting and waiting for an experience or for someone telling me something uh, with no authority or just thinking up something in their mind and telling me this is how you know God. It's been based on the Word of God and the Spirit of God making this alive to me. That's how I've come to know God. That's how you, if you know God, that's how you've come as well. By His Word, I have come to see that God is sovereign and holy. By His Word and His Spirit's ministry, I have come to see that I'm a sinner. It's like a mirror looking into it. I I can see it and I know who I am. It tells me the truth about myself. By His Word and by His Spirit, I have come to see that I can only relate with the living God. I can only have a relationship with the living God if my sins are taken away, they're a dividing wall between me and God, and I cannot have relationship with Him, I can't really know Him unless the wall comes down, and the wall comes down only one way. I know by His Word, the wall comes down by His Son, Jesus Christ. When my sins are applied to His account, and His righteousness is applied to my account, now I can know God because of Christ. And I only know this because of the ministry of the Word and the Spirit. I would know nothing otherwise. 
I've searched for God. I might look religious. I might look uh, like I have some spirituality. But I wouldn't truly know God if he had not revealed himself by his word and his spirit. And ultimately, his word and his spirit is revelation of his son who gives me access to the Father. That's how I know God. I've come to trust Christ for the forgiveness of my sins because of what he has revealed in his word and what he has quickened by his spirit. Because of Christ's work on my behalf, I know God. And you know what? I don't know God just as a slave or as a servant. You don't know God that way either. You know God now as a son or a daughter. Now, how do you approach your mom or dad? Even as simple as some of our human relationships can be, we can just go to our mom. We can just go to our dad when we want. We have access. We know God that way. He's our father now. I'm a son. You're a son. You're a daughter. That's knowing God. Packer says in his wonderful book that everyone ought to read. I think it's one of the greatest human books ever written. The title, Knowing God. He says, what was, is, and always will be the true priority for every human being, that is learning to know God in Christ. That is the fact. Knowing God is the greatest human experience there is. And there is only one way we can know God, by the revelation of of himself through his word and the ministry of the spirit you'll strive after win for the rest of your life if you try to find him any other way he reveals himself to us this way this is why it is so important reading the message of the prophets you know it can be kind of depressing especially you know Hosea's 14 chapters the first three chapters are kind of exciting you know what a movie that would make right and then you get to chapter 14 which we'll get there uh, eventually and there's redemption there that promise but there's chapters in between that's this constant recounting of sin Listen, first reason why this prophet is important because we understand, reading on this side of the cross, that it is Christ who fulfills this sin that we see revealed in the book of Hosea. Because we look at the book of Hosea, sin, and we say, you know what, that's them, but it's also me, and I need Christ. And on this side of the cross, we can see that and interpret that. And we read the prophets with great joy, despite how heavy it is, because Christ fulfills, Christ supplies the righteousness lacking here. But second, we can take sharp note of what got God's people down, what got them in this bind, what led them to the place they were, and we can ask for God's help to be corrected of this in our own lives, that we would not stop knowing God. If you look back at chapter 4 of Hosea, we're introduced to a concept that I want to explore today in our time together. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this. This is the first kind of indication of the heart issues that are going on with the people uh, being addressed. You know, you can see all the evidences of sin, but what's going on? What's making them sin? You know, it's not the sin that's ultimately the issue. It's something that's causing them to walk away from obedience to God. In verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Hear the word of the Lord. So there's a dependence upon the word of the Lord. See that, please. O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Chapter 4, verse 1. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So you see what's lacking. There's a lack of faithfulness. There's a lack of love. There's no knowledge of God in the land. That's the problem. And then verse 6 of chapter 4, it gives, this is what the problem is. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And he's addressing the priest's lack of teaching, quite frankly, and bluntly, the word. People were dying as a result. Judgment was coming because of it. Now look at chapter 6 in our text today. 
the theme is returned to. Verse 4, chapter 6. The same theme. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? So God is looking at Ephraim, the northern kingdom. He's also, notice, addressing the southern kingdom by saying, Judah. He's saying, what measure should I take to bring you to love me, to be devoted to me? Verse 4 in the second part. Your love is like a morning cloud. You know, that fog that's in the morning, but it burns off. It's, it's not real. It doesn't last. Like the dew that goes away early. You know, the, the grass is wet, but it doesn't last long. And the heat of the day comes and evaporates. It's not lasting. It's not real. It's not sustaining. Verse 5, therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. Hewn is a word we use for an axe hitting wood. So they're knotty and hard like wood. And the prophets have come and hewn them. That is with the word of God given to them. I have hewn them by the prophets. I have sent my word. It says I have slain them by the words of my mouth. So I have given them my judgments. And that's exactly what it says in chapter 5. And my judgment goes forth as the light. This is a reference to the Word of God going forth. Sometimes the Word of God is hard. It's calling us to repentance. More often than not, it's comforting and it's gracious. But I've sent the prophets. I've told you the truth. I've had to hew you with the prophets. But notice next what I'd like to bring out in several points along the lines of knowing God. That we learn that knowing God in verse 6 doesn't come from obedience, and I mean by obedience, obedience to outward rituals or the feigning of worship. This is the first thing we learn in verse 6 where it says, and look what it says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The first thing we learn about the knowledge of God, which we can see clearly from chapter 4 and now in chapter 6, that's what's missing in the people the first thing we can discover is that knowing God does not come from the observance or obedience to outward ritual forms for just walking through the motions of worship. That's exactly what was happening. The people were going through religious rites as if they were the substance of the relationship with God rather than the evidence or the reaction. And what I mean by this is that they were taking sacrifices to God uh, in a ritualistic way, but then living any way they wanted. Not devoted to God, not seeking repentance for their sins when bringing the sacrifice, but rather, I can do whatever I want as long as I follow through with the sacrifice. And the sacrifice is pretty extreme. It's the slaughtering of an animal, right? So if I go through this extreme step of outward function, certainly I'll be okay with God. And I don't know about you, but that's how I lived a lot of my life growing up, was as long as I went to church on Sunday, and uh, in my case went to Mass and I kind of did my part, I really pretty much can be disjointed about how I lived the rest of the week because I did my duty. I mean, I went to that rite. I went to that ritual. I went through the steps and the motions. And I was okay. And brothers and sisters, we can do the same thing today. We don't bring sacrifices, but you might come and go through all the motions. You might kneel, you might stand. You might read the, the, read the, the readings that are there, hit, sing the hymns, and all the while your heart is totally apart from God and you don't know Him. And it's not just our form of worship that can lead to. I've seen it happen in every form of worship where there's an outward expression, something we go through, It really has no connection to reality and knowing God. And God sees this and he tells us that outward obedience, doing this thing, does not mean you know me. In fact, this is a theme that goes throughout Scripture. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. He's saying not that sacrifice is bad, But if sacrifice is disconnected to real, living faith, then it means nothing. Don't even bother. You know, the nations do that, and they don't know me. So don't even bother bringing me a sacrifice. 
if your heart is not, is not bent towards me. Proverbs 21.3 says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. It's interesting that Jesus twice quotes Hosea 6 here. One time comes in Matthew 9, And Jesus reclined at the table of the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and the disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. He saw the hearts of the Pharisees were not bent towards God. In fact, they were bent towards self-righteousness because they looked at other sinners and said, hey, they're not acceptable to God on the basis of their sin, as if they were acceptable to God on the basis of their righteousness. Jesus sees to the heart of this and says, you're missing it. You're dressed as Pharisees, you're going through the motions, you're doing your readings, you're worshiping, you're leading in sacrifices, and you don't get it at all. You don't know me. These people know me. They know their need and they come to me. Going through the outward rituals does not make us know God. Brothers and sisters, we have to be careful to recognize the temptation, to think that just going through the motions of worship even somehow mean we know God. A pastor, Robert Rayburn, says this, and I think it's helpful. He warns us in the church. He says, this same error, the same sinful tendency to reduce worship to banal and merely outward forms, I find in my very own heart as I come to church Sunday after Sunday. And I know it lies there in your hearts as well. It is astonishing and fearful how easily, how regularly, how constantly our great faith, our Christian religion, with all of its utterly unique emphasis on the personal God who has loved his people with an everlasting love and saved them from sin and death at such a cost to himself can be turned, even by God's true children, into a religion like all others. A regular performance of outward duties, mechanically repeated week after week, that we not permit it to be so of us individually or as a congregation. That we stand against this tendency with a holy violence. Knowing God is not about mere outward forms. But we also learn in verse 6 that knowing God does not mean mere mental assent. Verse 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Please notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say only, I desire the knowledge of me, just to know me or to know about me. It says, I desire steadfast love and I desire the knowledge of God. Those are actually put together as a concept. Knowing God is not just about mental assent to the fact of his existence. In fact, in the book of James, uh, there's this debate rhetorically going back and forth in the apostles' writing. And he says in chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one. That is your orthodox in your thinking. You know about God based on what's been revealed. You believe that God is one. Well, even the demons believe and shudder. If it was mere mental assent, the demons would be redeemed. It's not just about mental assent. Sometimes we get so much confidence and trust that we know our theology well, or we know the chapter and the verse, and we know all this stuff about God. We can theologize to the end of the day. We can doctrinalize backwards and forwards. At the end of the day, there are many people like that that actually don't know God. They know what it says in here and in all sorts of other books, but they don't know God. 
It's not just about knowledge. I want you to think about this. Is faith to you cerebral only? Is it only about what you know to be true legally? Is that really knowledge? Do you really know God on that basis by knowing facts about him? This summer, I had one of the highlights of my life. I was able to go to Graceland in Memphis. Now, as a, my mom will attest, as a youngster, in fact, I was actually did an Elvis impersonation when I was 10 years old. One of the best ever done, I was told, by the people who saw it. I love to read about Elvis, and I was, uh, uh, he died in 1977. I was six years old when he died. And I read about him, and I remember uh, someone bought me the album, the, the Hawaii album that he did in 1973, June to be exact. And the album cover had him with the, with the thing wrapped around him, you know, they wear in Hawaii, whatever those things are called, the laid, and he, he was singing away. And I had several different records for the kids here. These are these black vinyl things that you put on and swim. And uh, I remember listening to Elvis. And I'd read about Elvis and, and learn about him. And I was confused by what was going on with him. I wasn't necessarily a professing believer at the time, but I recognized this weird struggle in this guy's life. I realized how young he died. I noticed in 1953 how he had his first album, where he raised, was raised from. He went and was drafted to go to Korea after the war was over, and he was there for two years. And I found all these things very intriguing and interesting and in how his life developed into the movies and then into the comeback and then to the tour and then... I got to go to Graceland last year and check it out. You know, I had read a lot about him, and when we went through and I saw the different suits, this is how much I knew about him. I could tell you which concert he wore that suit at before I read some of the signs, and there was hundreds of them. I'm a little embarrassed to tell you this. I felt like I know him as I saw the place. I was in the racquetball court where he was first having problems that night that he died. He played a game of racquetball with one of his bodyguards. I know a lot about Elvis, more than I should know about Elvis. You know a lot about a lot of things. I've talked to you. But I don't know Elvis. I never did, and I don't now. I just know a lot about him. There's nothing vital about my relationship with him. It's just that I know a lot of facts about him. I may be able to impress you. I may know more than you about it. But I don't know him. And there are many people that are walking around with all sorts of head knowledge, and they don't know God. Knowing God is not just about head knowledge. Knowing facts about God. But look at verse 6 again in a new light. Knowing God isn't based on a warm feeling either. I don't want to have the pendulum swing from head to just pure emotion. Verse 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So we see the statement, steadfast love. And you'll hear people use love in such a sloppy sense. Like, I just love God, and I just love Jesus. I know God, because I, I just love the Lord. Well, understand that this is a very difficult word, hesed, in the Hebrew, to properly translate. And that's why your versions are all different. And steadfast love, it, it's purposely meaning to show a kind of love that's not just sloppy. That's not just feelings-based or emotion-driven. It's committal. It's it's something that God draws us into by way of His covenantal, His initiating action in our life to save us. It's descriptive of a, of a committed love or mercy that we have as a result of the love that God shows us. It's really a profound and deep word, and it's difficult to translate, and we should not think for a moment that just because you feel like you know God, that you know Him. Knowing God is not about a warm feeling you get when thinking about your concept of God. 
Knowing God isn't based on an experience you had. You know, there are two extremes we have to admit. There's this extreme of the reliance solely upon head knowledge and then this reliance solely upon experience. Total feelings-based versus total cerebral-based. And we are not made that way. We are body and soul, and we have a mixture of these things that work together, used by the Holy Spirit, to make us know God. But it's not just one, it's not the other. It's dangerous just to say you know God based on some experience you had or some feeling you once had at summer camp back in 1988. You're not saved based on a feeling you had back then. You're saved because God committed to save you. Even your comprehension of it does not determine whether you really are. Feelings are not reliable. In fact, in Proverbs it says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Proverbs in chapter 14 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. In other words, don't count on your feelings, your quote-unquote natural feelings, to give you knowledge of God, to make you relate with God. Knowing God isn't based on just warm feelings either. But rather take verse 6 as a whole, and we see knowing God has to do with a loving comprehension of your God. A loving comprehension of your God. Take it as a whole. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Do you see how they're paralleled? Steadfast love, not sacrifice. Knowledge, not burnt offerings. Burnt offerings and sacrifice meaning the same thing. So therefore love, steadfast love and knowledge are put on top of one another, overlapped, and that's the concept of knowing God. It's different than just knowing or just feeling. It's both. And it's based on the ministry of the Spirit revealed in His Word. That's what knowing God is. And only someone who has access to the Father through the Son understands this. You'll talk to all sorts of people who say they know God, but they don't if they don't know Him in this way. A loving comprehension of your God. Knowing your God as a son or a daughter. That's really knowing God. And you'll never come to the end of knowing everything about God. In fact, we'll have all eternity. People will say, I'll be bored. No, you won't. Because you will never at any time in, in eternity come to the end of knowing God. Ever. There'll be more to know. And if you come to the end of it, then he's not God. And so knowing God has to do with you relating with him as a son or a daughter, knowing what he reveals about himself, sensing because of the following of what is here, sensing his love for you, and then consistently learning about him forever and ever and ever and never coming to the end of it. You'll never stop learning to know more about your God, but you will know him. A loving comprehension. And notice it's not the, just the God, but your God. He's your personal God because of what he has done for us in Christ. Christ has given us access so that we might know God. That's exactly what Paul tries to hammer home in Romans when he says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not peace through anything other, but through Christ. That's why we can have that peace. In writing to the Corinthians, Paul says something very similar, and he says this over and over again in different forms throughout the New Testament. All the writers do. But he says in 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 18, All this is from God, so he initiates, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now that we're reconciled with God, we can be reconciled with one another. That's knowing God. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, the church, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the message of the church to anyone here who doesn't know God. To know God, you must be reconciled to him by Christ, 
No other way. To those of us who know this, remember it anew. You know God. If you're going to drop a name, drop that one. I know God. You ever watch the interviews, especially we see them all the time today. People are so hungry for something spiritual in our, in our world. I'll see these interviews with various folks of different religions, and you'll see this, this pious Muslim talking about how they believe. And you just have this sense, and uh, it, it, obviously we can have our debates about where the authority lies, uh, but when you watch it, you don't sense that there's any personal knowledge of God. In fact, there's nothing but wondering if they'll actually be accepted by God. And some are so extreme that they'll do things hoping they will be accepted by God. Brother, sister, we're, we know God. We're his child. We don't have to live that kind of insecure life. And you see it across the board with people in our country and pop culture just sitting on that talk show wanting so badly to have everybody agree with their weird view of the world so they're secure. But they walk out of there after everyone in, this, in the audience may have shook their head and agreed with how great it is that they've learned to love themselves. When they walk out, they realize they're just as lost and insecure and don't know where to begin to know God. Knowing God is a loving comprehension of your God. Finally, the verses unfold. Truly knowing God will produce obedience. Now, it's not that God's saying, I don't want any sacrifice. I don't want any worship. He's saying that you have to have a real relationship for it to mean anything. And if you do, it will produce obedience. That's a constant theme of Scripture. Getting it? in the right order is key. It's not obedience that makes us know God. It's knowing God that causes us to obey. Look at verse 6 in that life, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So it's a reference back to Adam's transgressing the stipulation God gave them. And he gave the people of God in Israel a stipulation. He gives us stipulations. They transgressed that. It evidences something. There they dealt faithlessly with me in verse 7. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. That's a place where there was this terrible assassination plot in the kingdom of Pekah who killed Pekiah. So there's a, a terrible assassination that went on in the kings of the northern kingdom. That's what the reference to Gilead is. Tracked with blood. You see the footprints of blood there in the murderous scene. Verse 9, as robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. See, all this is showing that their actions prove they don't truly know God. And the actions here are of the highest level of heinousness because you remember the Levites were the true priests. So when the northern kingdom divides, priests are appointed and they're not Levites, so they're not legitimate priests. And they're basically guys who were hitmen. Uh, they were highway robbers, literally, and that's what it says in verse 9. As robbers lie in wait, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. What does this mean? Shechem is a city of refuge. People who, who need a fair trial go there. Well, before they get to have the, the fair trial, priests would lie in wait and try to extort money out of them. And if they couldn't pay, they'd kill them. So they didn't get to the city of refuge on time. That's how bad things had gone. Evidence that they did not, in fact, know God. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Listen, the concept here is true in all of Scripture. Truly knowing God will produce obedience. The evidence that they did not know God was the rampant sin that was there expressed in their lives. Not sins that we commit and repent of because God gives us grace to. It's open, in God's face, sin that they're going to do and then still bring a sacrifice. 1 John 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Knowing God will produce, ultimately, obedience. And that's what we see over and over again as a fruit of the Spirit. As God redeems us, as he calls us to himself by the Word and the Spirit, he starts to change our lives, starts to change our actions, bends our hearts, our affections towards God. I want to close with this thought from Packer. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know God. Disregard of the study of God, and you disregard the study of God, and you sentenced yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. Brothers and sisters, I sincerely want to encourage you that you know God that makes all the difference. Just as I started with the quote from Packer, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems will fall into place of their own accord. I want to finish with that thought as well and commend it to you for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we say with the prophet Jeremiah and agree with him when he says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him, let her, who boasts, boast about this, that we understand and know God. Lord, we thank you for giving us access to yourself as our Father through the blood of our dear Savior Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would not just hide this under a basket, but rather we would Go forth into our various places of influence and interconnection with other people and let them know that we know God. Let them know that it's not because of our righteousness, but because of your initiating love. Lord, I pray that you would draw many to yourself as a result. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here today who doesn't know you yet, but now knows you in Christ. But I pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.